This is an unlocked episode of the New Models podcast. Under 50% of New Models content is ever made public. To access the full New Models expanded universe, subscribe at patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. Welcome to the New Models Podcast. Throughout my career interneting and culture producing, I was aware of an online figure who seemed to be really excelling at both. During an age when playing fast and loose with words and signs felt increasingly dangerous, this person had discovered how to push the limits of imagery in a way that, mostly, slipped through the filters of mods and moral entrepreneurs alike. They realized that agency and autonomy over one's own body remained a sacred right. So even the most bizarre kink and consensual forms of body horror were protected categories. Coupled with an innate eye for beauty and a deep understanding of Q New Models byline, how network technology affects culture, this figure, Ben Ditto, leveraged his practice of extreme imagery into fashion, helping to launch Days Beauty, short film, directing spectacular reality for No Agency New York, and into a large following with his distributed community, Ditto Nation. After years of mutual awareness, Ben Ditto and New Models finally connected when he was in Berlin last week. What follows is a conversation about technology, aesthetics, and the internet, past, present, and future. I'm Lil Internet, joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guest is Ben Ditto. Let's get into it. New Models Podcast, Episode 49. GPT Ditto with Ben Ditto. Okay, so we are here tonight in Berlin with Ben Ditto in the studio. And he exists we, offline. He does exist <laughs> offline. We just ate pizza with him. I'm just going to use your own words here, Ben. So Ben Ditto, creative director, artist, and cultural analyst with a background in communications, independent journalism, and publishing. He likes to talk about current affairs as they express themselves through information and disinformation, transgression, narratives, and contemporary cognitive cybernetic conflict philosophy. Sounds like our kind of guy. Really excited to speak with you today about your work, about online communities, about politics in the age of digital channels and creative agency in 2022. Thank you. It's really good to be here. It's good to meet you because, yeah, we exist. We're real, real human beings. I think New Models is interesting because it's particularly nebulous in a really clever way, which I like. It needs to be something tangible. So first of all, what are you doing in Berlin? So I'm here to see you guys, of course. I'm having a couple of work meetings, went to Bergheim a couple of times, and I'm filming the first episode of my TV show tomorrow, Ditto Nation, which I've been threatening to do for about two years. But yeah, I'm here to do that primarily. And so say more. So Ditto Nations, you have a great Discord. You have an epic Instagram and blossoming TikTok presence. <laughs> um, of course, you also work independently in many capacities, but say more about Ditto Nation. What is that and what is this TV show? So Ditto Nation started as the name I put out, in, as I often do, put out the question to my Instagram followers, what should we call the Discord? And somebody very cleverly suggested Ditto Nation, which is like a pun on detonation. Ah, <laughs> you, you see uh-huh. what I mean? So a very clever pun that nobody ever gets. And Ditto Nation, people have been saying 
it would be good to do a podcast for a while. And I thought, actually, you know, I'm a child of the 90s and I remember TV shows that presented like kind of hyperactive magazines. And I thought it would be good to go the opposite route of a podcast and do a sort of produced TV show. So it's going to be like a monthly document of our time. And then in between, I'll be doing kind of, I'm going to call them audios rather than podcasts because it'll be more sort of documentary style. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see where it goes. I think it's just, you know, I love talking to people. And, you know, that's primarily how that community is built is I talk to about 200 people a day online individually and that discourse dialectic whatever is what is that's what defines me I'm entirely defined from the outside in by how people perceive me so that's, <laughs> that's what the community is it's constructing me from your opinions but wait a minute I'm just trying to do the math on that you speak to 200 people a day are you texting with people continuously yeah. mostly text yeah, yeah it's, it's or, all texting I, yeah. I absolutely detest phone calls this yeah. is all text messages okay so, wow yeah. Yeah, right. when More I say efficient. speaking yeah. I say messaging and yeah. you can then have like many threads happening at once exactly. which of course okay that but, makes sense so is it kind of like you post something and that becomes a signal and someone says, hey, I saw this post and they have something to share related and the conversation just continues from there? It's absolutely that. And what happens is that, you know, I will say post something about Nord Stream, then I'll get, you know, a bunch of my followers who have a strong opinion on Nord Stream or, mm. you know, work in the oil industry or energy analyst or whatever. They'll then message me back and I'll screenshot those and repost them. And that's a signal for people to engage. Uh-huh. I'll also post them anonymously. So whatever the opinion is. Is people feel safe that they can share it right. and also that they'll get a bit of personal clout even though it's anonymous seeing their right. opinions posted on an Instagram story. Could you give just a impression of the tenor of your Instagram and your content world? Can you just like animate that a bit for those who aren't familiar? Yeah, I would say I don't like over describing things, but yeah. I would say that my Instagram is anything I find beautiful or disturbing and Instagram I spend my whole life looking at things and talking to people, so it's a record of that. And then there's another layer which is Telegram which is much more transgressive and I'm very very particular about who I let into that and then discord which is a bit like a petri dish of um <clears throat> very sane balanced people <laughs> talking about the things that I find interesting uh-huh, on a daily uh-huh, basis uh-huh. So. I mean maybe there's like an aesthetic vibration of hard yeah it's a hard it's like hard mood board hard mood board is like maybe yeah. the I would quality. say I'm always looking to try and make somebody feel something that I'm feeling mm. so beauty or disgust or horror or yeah. I would say Instagram is the mood board Telegram is mood gore and Discord is mood core. Very good. good. I I mean, you could say that it's not ugly, but... You're finding beauty in the abject, that's clear, right? Beauty in the it's abject not. is a, yeah, that's a good description. Yeah. There's something, though, about the character of the images you post that I feel like used to be more present, or I would see them more often online 15, 20 years ago. I mean, I remember, like, Live Leak vanished from Google, like Rotten.com, does that even exist anymore? I mean, a lot of the gore sites got vanished from Google. So I, I almost feel like there's maybe a kind of practice that feels to be a bit lost. I don't well, know. It's probably a heritage of the industrial music or noise music scene from the yeah. late 70s, early 80s, which is definitely the most influential thing on me when I was growing up. There was a magazine called Answer Me and a band called White House. Yeah. And those, they were very transgressive. And obviously a, a lot of Japanese eroguro culture, you know, violent manga and gore which you know I saw from a very early age and I had an appreciation for it because it was very thoughtful but yeah that stuff's just all been censored off the internet which is why yeah you know how do you get away with <laughs> with the Instagram that you have because it seems like you must be getting reported oh, all the time yeah I get reported this is my I've built 
four accounts now, three with 50K followers, one that's been deleted and never come back, which I had for about eight years. The main one which I'm using now, Bendito Resurrections, I built in the last two years. And then the other one, which is called Bendito Meta, actually gave me my original name back, but I built that in the last year. And yeah, people report my stuff all the time. And to be honest, it's, it's a lot of it's AI reporting as well. It's not mm-hmm. just individuals. I think we can get quite paranoid about that stuff, but a lot of the time, I think 74% of the time, it's just <laughs> AI, you know? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, and increasingly that, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, we've spoken previously on this podcast about how we're are all terrorized by the platforms or the machine learning that runs the censorship. But you have a different relationship to these Web2 platforms, like edging, dying, restarting your player continuously, just assuming you're sort of already dead. Well, there's I think there's another level to it. So, you know, I don't drink or take drugs. <laughs> I, I need to get a hit somewhere. I think there is an element of dopamine thrill-seeking in posting something and not knowing whether or not it will delete your entire <laughs> career <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> so maybe that's part of it. You know, it is a thrill. Because there's another bend it on the internet, which I'm sure you're aware of. There is a Ben Ditto who's a climber. Exactly. A climber and a photographer. And I feel exactly. bad for him because I probably tarnished what his name. What is it with these Ben Dittos and their penchant for the extreme? Exactly. <laughs> climbing exactly. mountains and exactly. posting gore. Yeah, free I mean, climbing. Um, I mean, I don't know. We've noticed this wider trend of incoherence being a really effective thing to deploy. I think people are used to messaging being so refined and so clear and things being so distinctly tuned to their attention that people are really attracted to like fried memes that are barely legible or that you need to quadruple take to even understand. I also though was wondering if just as a sort of mimetic vehicle, you imagine gore cutting through in a particular way that maybe breaks the hypnosis of the simulated space or is almost like a touching grass, like a getting resynced with the base gross reality of living. I mean, how do you imagine it operating as a purely mimetic vehicle? That's a really interesting question. I think that, yes, I would see the action of me posting something like that as a specific act of violence intended to disrupt people from being anesthetized, for sure. Mm. But at the same time, the paradox there is that the act of doing it means that you must be numb to something, and that paradox is interesting as well. Mm. So I think, you know, playing around with what that really means to be desensitized and then try to provoke a feeling in someone else is, yeah, it interests me, for sure. It's a very good observation. It's almost like there's a perfect amount of gore you should consume to like yeah. still have it have that effect on you without getting desensitized. Well, yeah. I think but, this is probably what public executions were before. You know, uh-huh. you, you go and see just the right amount of death to keep you on the straight and narrow, but huh. you don't you don't want to be the executioner. You know, you don't right. want to be the person who does that job. You want to just see enough of it to remind you that you're alive and that you're human. I mean, there was more of this in the 90s. Like We were thinking about how like a figure like Gigi Allen was so present in the 90s. Or even someone like Genesis P. Orridge, who would like really play with the extremes of a body. And there was just this like impossibility of posting it and not committing algorithmic suicide. I mean, we're even thinking of like the Mondo films of the oh, right. 70s, yeah. uh, Faces of Death in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, there was... I mean. Okay, yeah, I, I'll be contrarian here because I just feel like this is all the same limbic hacking kind of content. And right. you can say that things are sanitized, but there's like Dr. Pimple Popper has a TV show that's on like broadcast cable. It's not even just niche internet content. Like there's absolutely 
plenty of like institutional venues for really disgusting abject stuff. Maybe it's dressed up generally. But I mean, even the fact that Ben has managed to have multiple accounts get, you know, over 50,000 followers posting this kind of stuff, I wouldn't really call it transgressive in sense of like going against the purpose of the platform, actually. Of attention Um, itself. That's yeah, a good I mean, point, it's, though, it's Dan. certainly pushing the limits of it, but that's also by design what it is incentivizing people to do. So when you're kind of like surfing the sort of like algorithmic shadow band content, you're actually most optimally using the platform in the same way that like, OK, a lender, if you don't get any defaults on your loans, you're not actually taking enough risks. And it's like <laughs> it's kind of actually how you know, an extreme user who is really going for most limbic stimulation should use it, right? Mm. Like, by design. I think I have an interesting anecdote to say about I think that's true. Um, I think that, well, when my first account got taken down, actually my second account got taken down during the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, somebody from Meta contacted me uh, from their thought leadership unit, the European (laughs) Thought Leadership Unit, and helped me to get my account back. And we had a nice call and they were kind of archetype of who you would expect to work for a tech company. And we had this call and obviously I was considered a thought leader at the time because I was pro-Ukraine and I don't think this person really understood the rest of my content. So she got my account back and helped me out. And then I think she realized, oh, hang on, he's not actually leading the right kinds of thoughts and then stopped speaking to me and refused to, you know, refused to work with me anymore. So I think that there's, you know, the fact that a company like that even has a thought leadership unit is quite worrying because (laughs) what what are the thoughts they want to lead? But I also agree completely with what you said in that, you know, if there's no thrill in the use of a platform, then people would switch off quite quickly. Mm. So I think that they do need that transgression. Well, you know, I know transgression is the wrong word. They do need people to fuck around with it to keep it interesting, mm. but they don't yeah. want to uh, say that that's okay. Mm. Do you see what I mean? They need yeah. you. They want plausible deniability, plausible but they do need that stuff on yeah. the platform yeah, exactly. for sure. And, yeah. you know, in the same way that Trump was good for liberal news, it's a symbiotic relationship in a way. But, yeah, I mean, it's true, like, the Explore page, if I'm going to go and, like, DM you, Ben, like, I'm going to ha- look at, like, a whole grid of images, which are, like, variations on gore, or sex, or various limbic-type things. It's always what rises to the top of that Explore page without fail. It's also interesting with gore, it's, like, the context really matters, right? Like, medical context, okay. Like, a car accident, I think, is, like, not mm. okay, you know? Like, med, med spa, spas, okay. exactly, right? Yeah. It's, like, you can right. see, like, yeah. hoses, like, sucking fat out of a butt, like... No, for real. Um, but, or, like, yeah. vampire facials, totally fine. Right. I mean, I guess there's some matter of consent there or something, which is what it comes down to. But Uh, yeah, that it's, I I um, have to hashtag everything medical education. That's why I have that hashtag. And actually, I mean, I have to say guys, I do know quite a lot about their content moderation now. Uh And um, yeah, it's anything in a medical context is okay. Anything that isn't is almost always not okay in terms of gore. So that has evolved considerably over the last 10 years. Are you in any groups or talk to any people who do sort of the reverse engineering of the algorithms? I know on TikTok, it's huge. Like people would have like wall mind maps, like, you know, serial killer or something where they're like figuring out all of the different levels that are unlocked after a certain number of views or likes. 
it's kind of, a, I think, an interesting fringe hobby to try to reverse engineer the, the algorithms. I don't, I don't know if you I had... don't think it's as much of a big thing on Instagram because I think their algorithms are quite stupid. So I right. think the, t- the TikTok ones are very interesting and, and very good, quite frankly. It, do you remember when everybody was harvesting their personal ad data? You could, you, yeah. There was a day when you found oh, out you right. could go yeah. into your yeah, yeah. system yeah. preferences and, and then everybody realized, oh, it's, so it's, it's just not that scary. Yeah. This is so stupid. You know, like, yeah, it's like... Ben, like ben, like, yeah, I remember that. Like it was, yeah. I mean, it was probably about 20% accurate and then just a lot of stuff that was just truly bewildering and abstract and very much felt like a product of a black box algorithm and not, not anything intelligent or Cambridge Analytica-esque or anything like that. It, and also, I think it deflated all the fears about Cambridge Analytica in general because of that. <laughs> I think, um, I think it came across like, as an algorithm built by somebody who has never left their tech company lifestyle mm. or, you know, met other people outside of that world, to be honest. I think it was a good reflection of the people who built it. I wanted to come back to the vampire facial and gore before we like leave that exactly. Maybe actually this is a good moment for us also to talk about day's beauty and transhumanism is probably the wrong word, but there'll be like an AR layer that will be our interface in a lot of stuff that we do. At the same time though, there's almost like something pathological about our obsession of puncturing the skin, like whether that's through a kind of plastic surgery or mm. med spa type stuff. Whether or drip, that's through drip bars, drip like bars, there's like vitamin IV bars totally. in the States now. Or whether it's through like IVF injections or like gender transitioning injections, physically puncturing the skin to hack the endocrine system or opiate addiction or, you know, like any number of things, right? Mm. There just seems to be, maybe this is apophenia and it's not true, but I feel like there's a real obsession with permeating the skin barrier to like hack the body at the same time. Does that track for you or like... Oh, 100%. I think there's a pervasive illusion that the skin is the barrier of the self. Yeah. So this is, you know, I was thinking about this today that, you know, where does the self begin and end? And I think that we all have it, you know, understandable reasons. We all perceive that our skin is where our self ends. And I think that, you know, this is the whole kind of lie of transhumanism or the lie of where we're going with transhumanism is that the skin is, you know, if you think that you will be a transhuman when Neuralink gets tapped into your brain, you're delusional. We've been transhuman for a long time. Yeah. We, you know, our essence is decentralized, you know, is I'm holding my phone, listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> In a really pointless mime. But yeah, I think we crossed that barrier of the self a long time ago and it's got nothing to do with skin at all. But it is a, it's a very kind of enduring illusion. So why do you think that, that there is such an obsession with this? Well, not uh, even an obsession. Or, I think it's more of just a comfort. Yeah, like comfort it's, it's no longer The needle taboo is no longer... I mean, it just feels right. like people are much more comfortable getting derma filler or a vitamin drip. It just, the lips, everybody has the lips. It's almost, like yeah. the, it's almost like people started thinking of their own bodies in the context of a machine they pilot mm-hmm. as opposed to like... And it, it's like a hack. It's like everybody is working on PCs as opposed to Macs. Everybody can like hack their endocrine system or just like the way people use drugs differently now in this very like strategic way. I imagine maybe the simplest way to think about it though is an increasing separation of mind body maybe hmm. and maybe because we spend so much time disembodied online like that waking the, ourselves the back body up feels more yeah like a separate system that you have to embody half of your day and the rest of it you're kind of just uh 
brain, eyes and hands and ears, you know. You know, we could, it's easy to sort of hark back to an idealised age, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember before phones and the computer, the internet and all of that stuff, but I don't think people were necessarily more mindful of their physical flesh mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. Maybe they just didn't have anything to replace it with. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? I think so I think people, that, yeah. people were very kind of, um, people treated themselves very badly in the 80s or the 70s, but they didn't have any alternative. Right. They just disassociated, whereas now you can choose to see your body as a vehicle in a way that now we have this online presence, there's something to reflect. I mean, Julian, something you've been thinking about recently is the idea of the mirror and like the idea of an individual identity versus a collective identity. I mean, I just imagine people, you know, a few thousand years ago had an extremely different relationship with how they thought of themselves since they wouldn't even see their own reflection unless they were like stooping over a very still pond. Like depending where you live, you might encounter a reflective surface very rarely. More and more, we're getting into our own heads, narrativizing ourselves always. I think we've always been defined by the people around us. And that's yeah. why, you know, being a hermit or being in solitary confinement or whatever in prison, those things, they lead to madness. And mm. I think there's always been an awareness of that. I mean, you're speaking to 200 people a day and they have avatar names or they're like yeah. they're semi-anonymous. I, I receive an average of about two to 300 messages every day and I answer about wow. two thirds of them. The vast majority I've never met. But I think that we've grown very capable in the last 10 years of making judgments about people based on very simple things. Mm -hmm. So I think if you brought somebody from the early 2000s to now, they would be impressed at how quickly we can judge people's character based on a few words. I think mm. that's a, you know, if you look at how naive people were in chat rooms in the, you know, if you, even if you look at chat rooms from eight years ago, they're incredibly naive. You know, the way that people perceive themselves and anticipate being perceived has changed radically. Yeah. It is true. We are much more discerning about all sorts of things and, and visually in general. We've been in a, like a training loop for a decade and a half, everybody. But Maybe. not just visually. Yeah, not just visually. I think dating apps have I've never used them because I don't think I look good on paper, (laughs) but I think that dating apps are, people have had to learn very quickly to avoid getting into some serious trouble, how to read people off very simple signals. Mm -hmm. Totally. And that's, what's the word? Accelerated or like it's like flashcard training yeah, to exactly. <laughs> be prejudiced against people from the least amount of information or data points. Uh, or warm to them, you know, not to be entirely negative about this. I think I can tell very quickly if it's if I'll get on with somebody based on very, very sparse information now, and I tend to be right. Yeah. You know, yeah. of all, it's very rare that I meet someone who I've made friends with online and I've been wrong about their character. You know, sometimes they're nicer than I expected, but they're never awful. <laughs> when I was expecting them to be nice. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it's not just about discerning, it's also about signaling and people being better at doing that and sort of knowing which things will signal your general affinity groups, et cetera. I guess it's both. It's true though. I mean, you can look at one text, like literally like four words from a politician and build an entire character off of four words said to X subject. So we have become like much more. Mm. And that links back to GPT-3, you know, like language learning models, which can learn to do quite convincing impressions of people based on very limited training data. That's such a good point, Ben. I hadn't thought about that, but just as... GPT-3 or OpenAI have learned from our everyday communications, we have too. Like our hive mind or our ability to perceive has also become incredibly sharp in that particular capacity. Yeah, I think These are the primitives that are going to allow Roko to resurrect people based off of their <laughs> digital trails and torture them forever. 
we're in the process of being able to create an entire model of a person just off of fragments of metadata. Yeah, I am so surprised it's not already a subscription service. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely Rogue been SaaS model for sure. Yeah, what have you heard, Ben? Well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure I've seen this stuff being discussed. There's definitely the avatars that were created for bereaved people in South Korea. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. They did do that. I've posted it, a tragic post on my Instagram account. But yeah, it's, it's deeply disturbing. Um, somebody who lost their daughter had an avatar made of them. And then she's interacting with the avatar on with VR glasses. And this is, you know, it's really not long until we'll be able to feed very basic online AI programs a few photos of somebody and a few of their letters or recordings of their voice and it'll be able but, to reconstruct well, a why character. a few? Like you give them the Facebook login, their Gmail login, their Instagram login, they have millions yeah. of words of conversation. I mean, you're going to have a really rigorous, accurate model from that. Probably because your loved yeah. ones wouldn't want a yeah, rigorous, yeah. accurate model. They would want an idealized version so they'd want mm. to have it highly edited. Do you know what I mean? I think if well, I was going to already be that in theory if it's revealed preferences as far as like posts and not just like browsing history that might not <laughs> give you the best uh, impression of the person Stay but out if my it's DMs, the stuff that they're yeah. deliberately showing then i guess but it would how, already uh like i'm you know. someone who believes that relationships can evolve over time right i think that there is redemption or whatnot and imagine if you had a bad relationship with the parent and the training data was based on that relationship that was cut short. You'd never have any resolution because the training set would just be caught just be like, in that, like, oh, like yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that, that avatar could then have therapy. And that's you true. Could, you that's true. That. That's true. There'd be like an add-on. No, but that, that is also true, though, because your avatar would ultimately be the quote-unquote real you. It would be you made out of you talking to people you like, people you don't yeah. like, clients breakups, like everything. Yeah. It'd be this averaging of all of the different faces you have. But we That's don't kind know. of hor horrifying. I would imagine though, they actually, like I know, but I would imagine you enter in like your relationship to the person you lost, mother, daughter, well, something. Well, that's version 2.0 and, oh, and we're just that <laughs> we're in the beta right now. Right, yeah. right, right. If anybody wants to fund this startup, please contact <laughs> me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, this actually leads to another question. Julie and I have been talking a bit, I mean, we all everyone's been talking about the coming creative job apocalypse. Matt and Holly on the Interdependence Pod had a really great episode on this as well, where machine learning is going to eliminate a large portion of currently human-generated creative labor. Historically, I will say, new technology always disrupts creative ecosystems, putting those technicians out of work, but the job of the artist simply evolves. I mean, I don't think that the artist's job is actually displaced, it's the technicians. But so you work in a lot of these digital spaces, and I wonder where you see the fulcrum of creative agency in the coming creative landscape. Like, where will the actual creative act happen? I mean, I think, you know, stock photographers will be worried right now, yeah, and, right. and rightly so. Yeah. But I think maybe the interesting thing is that the creative sector is the only sector that this hasn't happened to so huh. far. So this is a new thing. Yeah. Creativity has never been threatened by mechanization. Mm before and now it is wait, wait, wait. Well, wait, yes, like has, photography right? of course photography. did that like that was recording huge. i mean or, even like audio recording i think yeah. that was, i'm sure there was a big drama about how or photoshop you know, <laughs> 
sheet music no, industry was going to go all out of, of those business. Th- you know? All of those things are enhancing or they're all tools. They all to added make you, jobs, they, they essentially. They add jobs. What I'm talking about is the reduction in job opportunities hasn't mm-hmm. happened in the creative industries. All of those things, I think, yeah, it's true. That's the mechanization of creativity, but it hasn't been taking away from the job market. Uh-huh. It's been adding to the job market. So now people are facing the same thing that's been happening in other bits of industry for the first time. And yeah, how you put it, the fulcrum of creativity, I don't think it will change because the thing that, for me, that resonates with art is an understanding of the human condition by another human or, you know, another human trying to communicate something with me about being human. Huh. Uh, however, these things are all tools, you know. They're, they're That's all, right. They're, however, you know, there are very tangible jobs which will not be required anymore quite soon. But I don't think it's the job of being an artist or being a creative. I think it's the crafts. The crafts are being threatened. Mm-hmm. Right, the technician. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I like that you put that. A human who's relaying the human experience, which will just continue to evolve. It's at My ex-partner, I was with somebody for six years who used to write those Amazon Kindle books of like, a werewolf falls in love with an alien, like romantic, oh. sort of <laughs> sex book. I don't know how you describe them, erotica novels. But she would write a book in a day, two days, um, you know, 120-page book or whatever, get paid not very much, knock out these books. She wrote this series of vampire novels that were wildly successful, and nobody knew who wrote them. But those things will be automated. But I don't think it'll make much difference, do you know what I mean? I think people consume those things in a very kind of mechanical way, and it doesn't really matter whether she wrote them or whether it was generated by machine learning. Because people just have an insatiable appetite for that stuff. It's so like, like corner something. Yeah, that's I was like just ML, about to who say, cares, yeah, right? it, it's maybe it's better. Maybe it's yeah. more ethical for porn to be produced, if by anyone, by machine learning, and certainly kind of really shitty erotic novels that are sold <laughs> as Kindle books for two pounds. You know, but that's where I see it going at the moment. Do you, do you know about prompt engineering? Yeah. There's a website out there where you can sell prompts that are used on Dali. And basically uh, people pay yeah. like $2 for a good prompt, which will generate you this type of birthday card. Um, it, is, it is pretty interesting that at this point, your vocabulary is like directly your creative arsenal in a way. And it's sort of like a haiku exchange, actually. Magic haikus, basically. Writing does seem to be actually a really good skill to have right now. Yeah, right. More, it's as important as ever, if not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and similarly, not just with, you know, creating images, but the ability to create interfaces and programming based off of prompts. Similarly, really good writers will actually be able to encant stuff into existence. It starts um, to feel, it's a very like cult or like magic process. Like you're trying to discover like that's true. true names of a certain aesthetic or something. But this is, I mean, the, this is where coding is going. You know, what we're talking mm. about is kind of the humanization of coding. And I think that, you know, what, yeah. whatever, however you want to describe it, a magic spell or a prompt or <laughs> whatever, these are all kind of humans using language to create effect. It's, I think, the evolution of coding. I mean, I was thinking about this. I was like cleaning up my HTML site. I don't really know how to code, but I felt like, isn't there some language application where I can simply say, float center of screen and it just does it? Like, why do I have to Google each of these steps and then add the code in? Uh, within the next year and a half, you will absolutely be able to do that. I yeah. mean, they're already, they're, I've definitely seen demos of that even a couple of years ago. 
Oh, uh, right. I think even just using like GPT-2, not even GPT-3. But I would guess that that's really is coming very soon. I think it's probably the same as legalistic language. There are uh, t- Maybe it's about maintaining jobs within the very large IT sector as well. You know, if right. you invent something that writes everybody out of a job, then the people who, they're not going to be responsible for creating their own destruction. <laughs> do you know what I mean? The, <laughs> yeah. the, those guys. It's kind of interesting. Well, yeah. You think, Dan, yeah, that that's I, not enough of a barrier, that if it, will, if it can be done, it will be done. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I definitely, I mean, if you think about, like, lawyers are for sure affected maybe more than anything. They're one of the first to be out of a job because most lawyers could be reduced down to an algorithm as far as <laughs> finding precedent and the way things are supposed to be written. That's, like, actually one of the easier things. And I think the same thing with, uh, yeah, interface design. That's definitely going to become commodified next. I have a sort of just, like, a practical question. Like, what platform are you releasing the TV show on and... How are you thinking about distribution? I'm calling it a TV show because that's the intent, that it's perceived as a TV show rather than a vlog or, or whatever else. And I think that's mm. also because I'm a you know child of the 90s. But I'm going to be starting a Patreon and probably just hosting them on YouTube. Nothing that revolutionary. However, I think we're going to be doing some episodes on things which you can't put on YouTube, which we'll put on BitChute and then post links on Patreon. Oh, cool. um, so yeah, I, I wish I had a more imaginative solution to this stuff. But ultimately, I want it to reach as many people as possible. The tone of it will be very accessible. Yeah. Why, why not put it on the place? That's why, you know, whenever we have this conversation about Instagram content moderation, people are like, oh, we should start a new platform. Well, there's a billion people there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I, I want to reach as many people as possible. <laughs> so why would I go to the most niche yeah. place to post it? Like Vimeo, what the oh, fucking... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's not actually that much choice, really. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I think that those monopolies are only getting stronger and you see that with YouTube becoming, you know, the biggest podcast platform. It's like even audio specific platforms can't compete with the network effects. And so, yeah, I I don't think that there's any reason to try to fight against that. There's also no reason to be exclusive to those platforms. And if you have content that isn't platform specific, there's no reason not to just release it in lots of different distribution channels. And That's kind of how I perceive you guys as well. Like when I think about new models, I don't align it to any specific platform, which is interesting. And do you know about Nexta? Next to TV is a Belarusian uh-huh. news platform yeah. based in Poland. Um, I subscribe to Twitter. That I always found that I can't remember their founder's name, but he was really interesting because he was say like Next is just the idea and the content. It doesn't really matter where it is. You can find us on Telegram or WhatsApp or, or YouTube or Instagram or whatever. It's just Next to content. We don't really care where it is we just want to get it out to people and I think that's a very good model going forward because we can't rely on any single platform also I mean maybe Web3 will take off and we'll all have our own servers (laughs) and descend you know be able to well the Web3 application of that is not necessarily like having your own servers and it all being you know like cypherpunk version but things like you know guilds.xyz it allows you to have a sort of platformless guild where you know you're getting discord and a telegram and other platforms all you know using a decentralized registry and i I do think that makes a lot of sense and it allows for a community to exist on you know all sorts of different platforms at the same time and that definitely seems like the way forward just obviously so i think like it doesn't even require 
necessarily a huge leap in adoption for some of these tools to be useful for stuff like what you're planning. It's also think that- tested by, you know, when we saw the Russian invasion of Ukraine, like a lot of like Nexta, for instance, I mean, of course, Belarusian, but we saw a real resilience to media entities that were structured this way, that had a Telegram presence, a TikTok presence, a Twitter presence. Essentially, they were really effective because they weren't tied to a single platform that could be censored or shut down. They're also a very recognizable name and idea. So, you yeah. know, if they do get shut down, even like if you think about like a Russian PMC like Wagner Group, you know, they've got like Dark Side of the Medal and various other Telegram channels. People will start fake Wagner Group channels, but you can tell almost immediately because people recognize the personalities, the tone of voice and the, you know, it's completely anonymous, but it's not because you recognize the personality through all of these new means that are coming up. That's so true. Without even consciously thinking about it, you're mm. like, that's not the right tone. Yeah. That's not the cadence. That's not the language Well, that goes use. back to what we were talking about, being able to tell if people are decent or not on very sparse totally. means. You know, it's, yeah. I think that, you know, we're creating these characters which are disassociated from our physical presence, which are very recognizable and we're becoming very adept at reading those and recognizing them and warming to them or, you know, or, or whatever. It's a fascinating angle. Yeah, I mean, I do think this is also an emerging theme within Web3, but like how you can have kind of verified identity that isn't tied to a platform, that is a kind of a huge thing that needs to be solved, especially if you want to have this sort of non-platform dependent media outlet that exists in lots of places. And yeah, there's a big, I think, kind of battle for for this namespace and definitely not any clear winner yet on how that'll be done in a way that truly is like portable between all these different platforms and allows you to have credibility and reputation and stuff attached to that name. It's a big question. And how to do that in an ethical way that isn't just totalitarian, a whole other question, but interesting. I think the true answer to that is peak surveillance technology. Do you know what I mean? The answer to that is is very, very authoritarian um, technologies being used for something ostensibly utopian or positive. I, just, I guess like as an interesting thought experiment, I was talking to a friend the other day. Do you really think that any of you could imitate me online in a convincing way for a prolonged period of time or vice versa? Mm. I definitely couldn't. Even your short post, I don't think I could. I think even just brief messages with strangers are very hard to replicate. I think yeah. we can read that. I think we've become so good at reading the nuance in that. And I think that, you know, the way to verify that, as you were saying, is using some very, very creepy technology. But at the same time, you know, with the blue check thing, you know when their intern is posting for them. Yeah, you know when true. their manager or their agent is deciding what they post because it hasn't in authenticity for, for now to you it. do, but I, I definitely am open to a GPT-4 <laughs> near future where that really is functionally impossible as far as knowing the tone. And, and sure, there still would be like contextual things that would give it away, especially if somebody knew. And I think for individuals, this is true. But if you're talking about like a brand or a media platform that already has, you know, a diffused identity as far as their posting habits or whatever, then it becomes an issue. And also maybe it becomes possible to really 
actually standardize a brand's voice like a style by sheet. having a you know certain <laughs> GPT-4 seed that is the the basis of it basically, and it becomes even more standardized. Maybe actually that becomes a extra security mechanism. I, I don't know. I guess AI green techs are actually quite good. You know, uh-huh. they're, they're uh-huh. quite convincing. But I was listening to so it was like a NATO security panel talking about the use of GPT-3 for the production of disinformation, and they're like, you know, you need a human operator, but you can generate a huge amount of this content and then just have somebody moderating it, correcting any sort of nuanced details that the machine doesn't pick up. And that's based on GPT-3, based on case studies. So I guess you might need a human operator, but they're not the person doing the writing. They're the person doing the moderation of this voice, this kind of homogenized voice. Which is already like basically what Business Insider feels like, or things like this, this sort of clickbait generators. I mean, definitely the like chum at the bottom of like Daily Mail has to be just like GPT-3 automated. It's like the same picture with a different headline. But but it's probably humans, but they're not that much different than GPT-3. In a way. Like they're writing so much based on consumer response, right? Like Essentially is the same thing. It's essentially the same thing because it's not their own voice. It's a a voice shaped by countless consumer choices. It's been refined and iterated. I mean, the refinement culture is really just humans already trying to emulate what machine learning will eventually do. But don't you think this is like there'll be like a vulnerability in like somebody posing to be like your brother or your friend? Oh yeah, or especially whatever. with voice like, cloning exactly. and stuff. I mean, they'll like, just have. I mean, the spam wave. The spam wave is going to be Ooh. so intense. People and also that you just robocalls that, yeah. that sound like your family member that right. says, "I'm kidnapped. Help me send <laughs> two Bitcoin to uh-huh. blah 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 address." This is already yeah. happening. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. They're not using AI voice spoofing. It's been d- it's yet, been done. Right? I mean, it's or been done with deep fake technology. I think it's probably yeah. been yeah. yeah demonstrated, but not right. it's not a it's gone it's zero to one. But I don't think it's gone one to n yet as like a right. scammer playbook. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole other there's a lot of talk about introducing micro payments to sort of like deal with spam, which was always kind of I mean, that's the whole bullish thing of Web3, right? Is that if the yeah. internet actually becomes pay-per-click, even if it's a small amount, it does at least disincentivize spam. Yeah, I mean, the economic models for spam is just like right. an insane amount. So even if you charged like a fraction of a penny per email to send, it would kill a lot of it, probably. I think it was, didn't Tim Berners-Lee say, it was one of his biggest regrets was not building in micropayment infrastructure into the original mm. web, huh. I think. Yeah. I mean, this is also what like Mark Anderson refers to as the original sin of the internet right. is that there was no money. But it's true; it, it created a lot of fucked up incentives because value couldn't be exchanged directly. So, yeah, I mean, there's some truth to it. Luckily, all the incentives online right now are great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's just yeah. pure neurotransmitters. At least that's clean. I, um, maybe this is an attempt to steal some uh, free consulting from you, but I've been thinking so much about just the flows of desire online. A lot of times I'll think about social media spaces as these flows of time and attention, but recently I've been starting to think about it as flows of desire. And one thing that's, I guess, been difficult for new models is that we've always sort of tried to avoid being dopamine or adrenaline driven. We don't really have a limbic or like a libidinal hook. And it feels like some sort of desire generation is really necessary to have your signal move through these networks. To make successful content. (laughs) Outward, yeah. Content that flows, lubricated content. 
right? It needs to be lubricated with desire. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder, since you are a intellectually minded person, but who also manages to restart four Instagram accounts and get 50,000 followers. I mean, do you deliberately think of like, okay, this is the attentional vehicle for this heady idea? hundred percent. Somebody who's close to me was saying the other day that my Instagram accounts hits all the buttons, you know, make you scared or laugh or cry or feel sexy or, you know, be interested or want to read more, whatever. That's entirely deliberate because my background is in magazines. Mm-hmm. You know, my background's in publishing. And if you're publishing a magazine, like, you know, I used to work at Vice in early days when it was funny. <laughs> and like I had an editor there who, you know, I'd, I'd hand in this 2000 word piece and he'd be like, oh, make it a hundred words. Just fucking, you don't need 90% of that, yeah. whatever. And, you know, those pictures are shit. Nobody's going to care about them. And working in that kind of industry over and over again, where you're thinking about how this stuff is going to come across, will it entertain people? Will it make them interested? I think that's the template that I've taken into social media. So I'm always thinking every day, like I want to give people something to laugh about and something, whatever, very deliberately. And a lot of that stuff is hitting, I think having an awareness of those base human desires as well as intellectual curiosity is an important thing. I'm not hugely successful. I'm kind of successful in a niche. Hugely successful people manage that very effectively. I think that's why Trump was effective. Not He's not intellectual, but he definitely understood how to resonate with people on a base level, for sure. Mm-hmm. He was like master. Yeah, there's also like, well, I wouldn't say there's necessarily empathy in Trump, but there is an empathy of like, how will what I'm saying be perceived? What does the reader have to gain from this? There's a thinking through, not just what I want to post. As you always say, like so much of the internet is just like flashlighting. Utilizing silicon to make yourself feel pleasure. Yeah, exactly. So and it's like lap, a, whether it's an iPhone or a flashlight, you're doing the exact same thing. Yeah, but there's a little bit of delayed gratification where you're like, what will the prospective viewer, like what will they experience when they receive this content? Well, this is the difference between a good shit poster and a bad shit poster. Do you know what I mean? I True, think that any yeah. good, a good shit poster has empathy because they will yeah. be thinking while shit posting about the effect that this posting has on the recipient. Totally. And I think that a good, you know, there are also, as you were saying with journalism or working for magazines, there are plenty of people who don't think about that for a second. They just think about themselves looking clever or getting paid. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is, you know, in term, that's bad content as we call it now. But, Do you know yeah, what I, mean? but, I agree, yeah. But then who is, who are you empathetic with? With, I guess for success, you're empathetic with the like literally, right? You have to have an imaginary audience or somebody who you're imagining receiving the content, right? I mean, and it's... I think that has to do with the scale you're aiming for or your ability to scale. Isn't it just people like you? I can only empathize with people that are broadly like myself. And I think that is reflective in my audience. And, you know, when you describe that kind of mid, the sort of height of the bell curve, the most successful people probably are situated in that same place. Do you know what mm. I mean? It's quite mm-hmm. rare to have somebody who's very successful but occupies a niche that resonates with the vast majority of the general public. Totally. And do you see what I mean? So right. We're probably yeah. all ultimately being masturbatory with this stuff yeah. and uh, empathising with our, ourselves or our own reflections. Yeah, that's just totally true. <laughs> So you have a rave coming up, I saw. <laughs> yes. Tell me what's the Ditto Nation rave. It looks really fun. Well, to be honest, I used to be a club promoter. So when I was a teenager, early 20s, I used to run a nightclub in my early 20s and I was a regular DJ at 
illegal raves uh, when I was, you know, when I was a teenager. And um, I've missed it. You know, I had a gallery for about five years. What was your gallery? Yeah, ditto. I had a gallery and a print studio and a shop and various things. I had sort of various iterations of it. Um, It used to be called Ditto Press, then Ditto, then Ditto London, now Ditto Nation. Um, The, when I had the gallery, we did events every Thursday, like, you know, openings, and it was always busy and always fun. But I realised that I just miss music and promotion. And I thought it'd be good to do a biannual, like on Fashion Week. So the idea is spring, summer, autumn, winter, mm. combining my community, music I like, and then artists and, you know, fashion designers, whoever. So I've got Jonathan Vinnell and Caroline Poggy. Doing, oh, yeah, they're yeah, great. Yeah, they're, we're doing this Gamer Zone. They've been showing one of their films and they've curated a load of games. And I've got a bunch of techno DJs who I really like. Cool. And the idea is that over time it becomes, first it's London, then London, Paris, then London, Paris, New York. And then over time it's like there's one in every major city throughout Fashion Week twice a year. Huh, cool. Um, just because it would be fun, you know. It would yeah, be a fun I mean, thing to do. And I good mean, for community building. Definitely. I mean, I think that was actually like question I have is like if you were to de-virtualize donation to a particular city it doesn't have to be like the city where there are the most people but like a city more like the city character or the city like mood or vibe where would you imagine did donation devirtualizing I think it's a hundred percent it's a very London but I think okay. if it wasn't London it would be somewhere in Iceland like inside a glacier or something oh, cool. like, okay. I don't yeah, know, yeah, something yeah. interesting I can't imagine being in another city just because I'm so attached to being, being British yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah if it wasn't there somewhere you know like Prada Marfa, like out in the desert. Totally. Okay, so ditto Iceland. Speaking of fashion, all of us are at the age where we've seen trends repeat themselves, but I have gotten this feeling that maybe there's like a certain aesthetic maximum that's been reached for our era. Like everything has been aggregated on Tumblr or Arena or Pinterest. The references are all there if you look for them. And scientists and researchers use this metaphor too. They say, you know, areas of research, the lowest hanging fruit gets picked and the breakthrough research gets progressively harder. And I wonder if you also feel that it's exceptionally difficult to find and create something that's both aesthetically novel and appealing to a large enough audience to get noticed. Well, I sometimes wonder if we've run out of images. Do you know what I mean? Maybe, <laughs> okay, maybe so I'm like, not alone in this yeah, thing. Yeah, maybe okay. this migration to TikTok is because we have run out of images. Like, I've seen all the pictures. Huh. I've seen all the images. Yeah. If there's an interesting image out there, I've seen it. Do you know what I mean? And I think I'm old enough to know that you can't appreciate a fashion in its moment. So, you know, now right. people talk about 90s style. I remember in the 90s thinking, fashion is dead. You know, nothing interesting is happening. And then you see it recreated and replicated and idealized. Undoubtedly, what we're doing now will be looked back at. You know, I mean, for me, the really fascinating thing about now is that all of the interesting subversive stuff is in the world of finance. And that's never happened. Mm. I guess like Wall Wall Street aesthetic, maybe um, in the 80s. But all of the really interesting stuff is happening in the world of finance. And that's kind of new. And it's hard for the art world and the fashion world to grasp that because they're not comfortable with it. Do you see what I mean? So all of the real like weird innovation stuff is coming from there. Although it is a sign of the fidelity shift, the environmental shift that is the reason there was a vibe shift. You know, I guess the easiest way to allude to it in terms of Web3 is once you attached money to the internet, it basically was like the radioactive stain that they put in your blood to like see how things flow through you. 
it was kind of this like stain that allowed you to see how desire flowed through the internet. These like very large networks of people. How currency, how, or, how literally well, like. How literally like, currency. Yeah. How like emergent organizations and, and groups would emerge. But when you say fidelity, you mean resolution, a level right, of resolution. Right. Yeah. Or like the fact that machine learning was able to fold all of the proteins, which we've never been able to do. Like yeah. that's a scale much smaller than we've been able to actually access before right. in terms of medicine or things like this. And right? our understanding of our body and biochemical construction right. of Discovering the new materials as well, like all of that yeah. stuff. It's prohibitively expensive until you have machine learning, but I like the idea of an immutable decentralized stain. It's like, <laughs> it's like tracking. I've been saying this for years and nobody listened to me, but the ultimate use of the blockchain is like peak surveillance. And, you know, if you want to track arms dealing or anything like that, oh, or, you know, black market true. shifts, it's, it's because, yeah, it's like you said, it's like putting a fluorescent stain into the underworld as well, into the black market and criminality and arms dealing and whatever else. Yeah, Otto Linger, I think, is the one brand that does feel new to me because it's just also stretchy and organic and asymmetrical. It looks yeah. like... I think Casey Cadwallader at Moogler is doing good stuff. There's some amazing people in China. And to be honest, I think it's a bit of a decline of the West situation where there's mm. some very cool stuff happening, but it's not happening where it used to happen, you know? I think that you're, that's, you're probably right. And also because China is a place, I mean, this happens on AliExpress where like this hat, I go on AliExpress, I say, huh, is there a hat that's entirely mesh? And I type <laughs> it in. And someone has made it, it's and like I order it. Downloading fashion. And I, yeah, it's like downloading fashion. <laughs> just, it's like AI pro. It's like yeah. Dolly for items. Yeah. And so, and, uh, and like five days later, it's here. From, right. Yeah. So I can totally imagine China because fabrication. Yeah. Right. Like you can get anything made there. So it's. Uh, Easier to produce anything there. It's the, it's the antithesis of haute couture, isn't it? You know, Cheyenne culture, like where they can produce, what is it, 2,000 new items a day or something deranged like that. Second biggest company in the world by valuation. Wow, and we're right. not even noticing it, you know, at a time where we're worried about the environment, but it's producing new looks and new styles through just throwing absolutely anything you can imagine at it as opposed to the haute couture approach of right. like really thoughtfully crafting something through, you know, meticulous whatever. But Cheyenne is also operates very much like machine learning, right? Because it's yeah. distilling trends. It's not create it's not imagining them. It's like seeing what's happening and then right. it's taking like aggregate word prompts and it's like, wow, it's synthesizing, lots of people are replicating right. hats, so we will produce that. There's nothing that new about that. Nothing is truly new really. And it's just new forms of existing things. And I think that being created through this refinement that we've been talking about in terms of character, but with fashion, is fascinating. And, you know, there are people doing, like, AI-generated fashion shows and that kind of thing. Mostly it just is nonsense. Yeah. But some of it won't be. Some of it yeah. will be interesting. Yeah, I always feel like there's these limiting factors, like your supply chain and your ability to take an image of your look and distribute that, and then access to new materials. And, mm. like, we did hit a certain peak sometime in the aughts, so like, the supply chains are all linked. And now maybe new fashion will come through limitations, like will come from stoppages of global supply or real demand to be more ecological. Like my mesh hat, my all mesh hat didn't arrive, so I had to make one. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, you know? exactly. I was at Do You Read Me the other day, a really great magazine store here in Berlin, and the guy working there, I was actually asking for an issue of Batshit Times, which you had an interview in. And uh, the guy from Batshit Times is uh, in the New Models Discord. And he said he was dropping some off at Do You Read Me? And I went there and asked if they had it. And they said, you know what? It was great, but we didn't have space on the shelves for it. There's a magazine 
boom, we have more magazines than we've ever seen in 20 years coming out. And I wonder where, is there a renewed niche for magazines? Do you think there's a magazine resurgence? Do you think all these new magazines are just what people with trust funds did over COVID? How do you? I absolutely think that's what the, I don't, you know, <laughs> that shit COVID? times aside, which I think is amazing. You know who you are. That's, yeah. I think a lot of it is just people who've been bored for the last two years uh-huh. and not had much to do. And to be fair, you know, why not? But I don't think, I'm not picking that up in the zeitgeist that, that you know, it, this conversation has been happening for so long. Mm-hmm. And like four years ago, I remember there's a magazine shop in London that was saying, you know, there's a, everyone's putting magazines out now. Yes, but 99% of them are, Drivel, you know, right? Drivel. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know how many good new magazines are coming out? I mean, you. I think some interview you were like, "Yeah, well, Instagram is for all intents and purposes a magazine for me. I treat it that way. Yeah. I think about it, editorializing it that way. And I'm. I think the magazine has a really interesting historical format. One that's co evolved with modernism. One that's important for identity formation. Also, the etymology of the term is right. Is of very, course, uh, a storehouse for goods for, like ammunition. Ammunition, right? Yeah. It, it yeah. feels very very complimentary to your Instagram magazine. True, like a literal cultural ammunition of some sort. But I mean, I'm interested in how the magazine can take this form that lives across different platforms and formats. Like, can there still be this idea of filtering the mess of the world, providing a space for identity formation, giving some kind of cultural value? Like, it just doesn't necessarily need to be in print. I'm not sure. I think it might have finally died. I think that there is no joy in shooting fashion editorials anymore. Mm. And actually, the only magazines I really buy now, I still buy Wired, but yeah. I read, you know, like The Economist and Private Eye and stuff right. like that. They're like factual yeah, magazines. Yeah, like news sources. Yeah, exactly. Sense. I don't see any particular joy or innovation in the print magazine. I don't know. Also, the relationship between like advertiser and content creator, like the magazine used to hold together. Magazines are always less about producing content than producing producing audiences and audience production is still necessary but we speak about I guess community production not audience production there's like a different kind of agency that that audience has now I'd still see it as an audience for sure I think the community for me implies some kind of it's like a mutual thing whereas an audience Mm. is a recipient of something and for me I feel very responsible for the audience that I create and you know I've worked with people before who have had audiences that they despise you know or that make their lives very difficult and I was like well we're all responsible for that and I will you know something we didn't talk about before I will post some things purely to get certain people off my page uh-huh. do you know what I mean? and that happens quite often and it's very effective you know if I know that certain types of people won't like certain things I'll post a lot of it to get them to fuck off because I'm engineering my audience <laughs> because that audience is that's the most valuable thing I have that's interesting to like to create something that's like an apotropaic post that will like push away <laughs> those like bad members. I recommend it. It's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good piece of advice. Well, this has been a super interesting conversation. We went a bunch of places I wasn't even expecting. So really appreciate that. If people want to get into the donation, Patreon is launching soon. Or? Very soon. Any day now. Okay, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> Stay tuned for Ditto Nation TV. Buy tickets to the rave and roving pages on Instagram. And Ditto Resurrections right now. Are you shadow banned or can they search and... Um, uh, Ben underscore Ditto underscore Resurrections or Ben underscore Ditto or you can try your hand at joining my Telegram and I might let you in if you're cool. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Ben. And... uh, Yeah, great talking to you and uh, hopefully we can chat again soon. Great to meet you too. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Cool. Ciao. 
Thank you for listening to New Models and thank you, Ben Ditto, for joining us. You can find Ben at Ben underscore Ditto underscore Resurrections on Instagram. Carly and I will be hanging out in Berlin next week with a New Models meetup on the 14th. So if you're in town, please do hit us up. More coming soon, as always. See you next episode. This has been a New Models production. Music and mixing by Lil Internet. For more, visit patreon.com slash newmodels or newmodels.substack.com. For Web3 access, visit channel.xyz.